0: In last week's podcast, we asked, why Australia? Why did Britain choose Australia as the site for its first nuclear test? And why did Australia agree to be used in this way? Having decided on a location, and after securing all the necessary permissions, the British and Australian politicians now had to work out what to tell the public. This was tricky, because the tests had to be done in secrecy. But at the same time, it would be impossible to hide the fact that something was going on. For starters, how would you explain the flotilla of big military ships setting off from Britain and heading down under? So the decision was, well, let's go halfway. We will announce to the world that, yes, we are going to Australia to conduct our first nuclear test. But we're not going to tell you what kind of atomic weapon we're testing, we're not going to tell you precisely when it will be, and we're not going to tell you just now where it will be. So in February 1952, a bland statement was issued from Downing Street, which said, it didn't really say much, it just said, In the course of this year, the United Kingdom government intended to test an atomic weapon produced in the United Kingdom. Now, that was an important part of the statement. They had to stress that this thing will be produced in Britain. We're not getting any second-hand pity nukes from the Americans. The statement went on to say, In close cooperation with the government of the Commonwealth of Australia, the test will take place at a site in Australia. It will be conducted in conditions which will ensure that there will be no danger whatever from radioactivity to the health of people or animals in the Commonwealth. The fact that the statement offered so little concrete information about the test set the newspapers to speculating. Firstly, the media wondered where this test would be carried out, and most of them, and we can hardly blame them for this assumption, thought it would be held at the Woomera rocket range in South Australia. I pronounced that as Woomera last week, but I've now watched a couple of YouTube videos and apparently it's Woomera.
1: This is a town that few people see. Woomera on the edge of one of the world's best rocket testing ranges. The guided missile range extends 1250 miles to the northwest, to Talgano, on the West Australian coast. Woomera is isolated, 300 miles from Adelaide in the middle of the desert but it's a comfortable, thriving town nevertheless. Buildings are springing up fast, and the federal government is expected to grant a million pounds to build more modern flats. The population will reach 5,500 in the next two
0: years. So we mentioned Woomera briefly last week. Um, It's situated in a relatively empty, big stretch of land, and it's already the site of, conventional weapons testing and cooperation between Australia and the UK, so it seemed like an obvious choice for a nuclear test. The guess was wrong, of course, but it was one the authorities must have been happy for the papers to make, and so the Woomera range served as a nice decoy for the time being. Whilst most journalists were eyeing up South Australia for signs of atomic activity, the British were heading for the north west coast to the Montebello Islands, about two and a half thousand miles away from Woomera. But one newspaper got close to the truth. The Guardian, in these days of course still called the Manchester Guardian, was cleverer in making its guesses on the location. They named Woomera, sure but they made clear that there was no certainty and said the test could be done somewhere else in Australia's so-called dead heart. I've never heard of Australia having a dead heart before. Having looked it up, it refers to the, the fierce, hot, forbidding centre of the country, which I've heard referred to as its red centre, but never its dead heart which is a very sinister nickname, of course. Britain's nuclear test in the dead heart would not have made for very good headlines. But then the Guardian speculated further, and they got closer to the truth. They wrote, Some government officials believe it will be on a 500-mile stretch of desolate coastline near Broome in the north of Western Australia. These officials, the paper reports, had speculated that it would be safer to test a nuke on Australia's coast, because getting the weapon into Australia's dead heart would mean transporting it across hostile and difficult country. And once there, in the forbidding dead heart, where would all the scientists and technicians and military guys live? We know that with the Trinity Test, a town sprung up to create the thing, there was nothing so hospitable in the dead heart, and there were no signs of one being hurriedly built. So the Guardian seemed to be leaning, correctly, to a test off the north-west coast. Turning to the Australian newspapers, they were largely similar to the British in making the announcements, but there were some articles which showed a A flicker of pride that Australia had been chosen for this epic task. I found one in the Australian sun which declared, This is our bomb, and our was underlined. Okay, I thought, judging by that headline, this is going to be an angry article saying something like, Bloody palms thinking they own the place. If the thing is being tested in Australia, and if we're taking the risk of contamination and fallout and piling resources into it, then it's our bomb too. That's the tone I assumed the article would take, but I was wrong. Remember in last week's podcast we talked of how close Australians, many Australians, felt to Britain in this era, the 1950s. Many felt themselves to be British and the Prime Minister at the time, who was born in Australia, called himself British to the bootstraps. Well, when this article declared this is our bomb, they were having a dig at America, not Britain. It celebrated the hope that, quote, this all-British explosion, which will echo over the red desolation of Australia's Woomera rocket range, will break down at last America's long silence on atomic manufacturing knowledge. So an Australian paper was taking pride in the upcoming British test, regarding it as their bomb too. Because, I assume, this was how close the Commonwealth bond was. So the news was out. Britain was heading to Australia for its first nuclear test. And this gave the British ships the ability to set off on the voyage without the burden of secrecy. There were five ships heading down under. The flagship was the HMS Campania, which had recently been doing a tour of British port cities as part of the 1951 Festival of Britain. So all her pretty festival bunting had been stripped away, and now she was kitted out for nuclear work. The HMS Zebrugge and Narvik were charged with being the workhorses of the expedition, carrying all the heavy gear and equipment. The HMS Tracker would act as the ship monitoring health and was fitted with decontamination facilities. And last but not least, the poor old HMS Plym. She was going to have the bomb placed in her hold and she would be vaporised. You would think that with such a crucial task ahead of them, all five ships would waste no time in getting to the Montebello's. But no. Historian Lorna Arnold tells us that Campania, the flagship, and Plym, the target ship, were obliged to take the long way round to Australia, round the Cape of Good Hope, instead of zipping through the Suez Canal. She tells us that the Royal Navy were to take the opportunity to show the flag and make formal calls at various ports en route. But this longer route also allowed them to avoid Egypt, which was undergoing revolution in 1952, and there was a lot of anti-British feeling. When the ships arrived in Australia, they first berthed in Fremantle, port in Perth, Western Australia, and from there they headed north to the Montebello Islands. There were now 11 ships at the islands, 5 from Britain and 6 from Australia. And certainly you would need a lot of ships and small boats because, as Lorna Arnold reminds us in her book, Britain, Australia and the Bomb, the test was being carried out on the Montebellos, which are a scattering of small inhospitable islands that called for lots of island hopping and transferring between vessels would be needed to put things in perspective she tells us that when they were in the Montebellos a journey between the Campania and the Plym for example often took two and a half to three hours so lots of ferrying scientists and equipment and technicians here and there and back again Added to that, the islands had no fresh water. Luckily for the science bods, when they disembarked, they found that the army, who had gone ahead of them, had done a grand job of laying down roads, communications, setting up generators and laboratories and jetties, and of course, erecting buildings, and piping in drinkable water. So a lot of bloody hard labour in the sweltering sun had been done on the Montebellos before the Boffins and their bomb arrived.
1: Off northwest Australia are the Montebello Islands. Far beyond normal shipping routes they lie, and until 1952, only Pearl fishing boats entered the blue waters that lap the cliffs surrounding their shores. Barren, unfertile rocks where no man lives buffeted by winds blowing in from the ocean, scorched by a dazzling sun that beats upon her empty beaches. This was the place chosen to explode Britain's first atomic weapon. Early in the year, equipment began to arrive from Britain for the great experiment in ships of Her Majesty's Navy. On board were men of the Royal Engineers and the Royal Marines. Upon them fell the task of handling the delicate equipment and preparing the islands for the dangerous test.
0: And how did the bomb get there? Well, the thing was carried in the same place it would be eventually detonated on the HMS Plym, with one small exception. It was lacking its nuclear core. This was brought separately to Australia, flying by air in an RAF Hastings from Britain to Singapore, where it was then placed on a Sunderland flying boat and onwards to Australia. The Plutonium Core had a careful guardian for the whole journey, Bill Moyce, a scientist from the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment, the site more commonly known as Aldermaston. Bill Moyce was responsible for what his obituary in The Independent called the most valuable object in the country. Never mind the crown jewels, it was this little canister which mattered. Indeed, it was so valuable that Bill Moyes was told that if the plane looked like it was going to crash, he was to grab his plutonium treasure and leap out of the plane with a parachute. His obituary tells us he was relieved this wasn't necessary, as he had never made a parachute jump before. Indeed, this had been his first journey by plane. When the precious core was finally connected to the bomb, the author Paul Grace described it as, quote, like something out of War of the Worlds, a gleaming aluminium ball constructed from geometric shapes five feet in diameter suspended about two feet above the deck with 128 cables springing from equidistant points around the surface and snaking around the deck of the weapon room. With the bomb assembled in the hold of the HMS Plym, one piece of the puzzle remained to be completed before they could decide on the date of the test, and that was the weather. They required a clear day with calm seas and a high tide, where the wind was coming from the south, and so would hopefully take any contamination away from the Australian mainland. To aid with all the weather predicting and recording, the Australian ship Kulgoa was working as the weather ship. We all know how crucial the weather conditions are to nuclear tests, or to nuclear attacks. Check out my episode called Kukura's Luck, where we learn that the Enola Gay, the plane which bombed Hiroshima, was put into service a few days later as the weather plane for the second nuclear attack on Japan. The primary target was Kukura, and the Enola Gay had to fly ahead of the bomber to check conditions over the city. As it flew to Kakura, the lagin Dragon did the same task for the second target on the list, Nagasaki. Enola Gay reported that the conditions were clear over Kukura, but by the time the bomber, Boxcar, got there, Kikura had become obscured by haze and smoke from the conventional bombing of a nearby city. And so, Boxcar turned away, and Nagasaki got it instead. The day chosen for Britain's nuclear test was 3rd of October, and in the dawn, the last sailors and scientists departed poor old HMS Plim, leaving her in the water, silent and alone, just waiting to be nuked. Everyone took up their positions, cameras and instruments ready and the men who were watching the test were simply told to turn their backs on the ship that was it they were given no special protective clothes or dark glasses, just turn your back
1: one minute to go slowly the seconds tick away tons of water, mud and sand blackened the gigantic fireball. Like a huge boiling cauldron, the cloud billowed upwards to a height of 10,000 feet within two minutes. Rear Admiral Torless, who was in command of the operation, and Dr. Penny turned to watch the great cloud after its initial blinding flash was over. Somewhere out there, the ship carrying the weapon had been vaporized. Smoke rose higher and higher the strong wind twisting and sprawling it until it was a mile wide at its centre and about two and a half miles high.
0: Here is a description of what happened, taken from Paul Grace's new book, Operation Hurricane. It's a recollection from leading seaman Henry Carter, one of the last men to leave HMS Plim. He was watching the tests from a boat. The signal came over the radio to prepare for countdown, and a black, heavy canvas tarpaulin was pulled over the boat, so we were now in darkness. We all then draped jungle green towels over our heads, and I pressed the palms of my hands into my eye sockets. I was dressed in shorts and a pair of shoes. At zero, there was a blinding electric blue light of an intensity I had not seen before or since. I pressed my hands harder to my eyes, then realised I could see the bones of my hands. It seemed that this light was passing through the tarpaulin and towel for about 10 or 12 seconds, and there seemed to be two surges... And two destinations with a continued rumbling and boiling sensation. My body seemed first to be compressed and then billowing like a balloon. Another observer said In an instant, despite a blazing tropical sun intensified by reflection from the water all around, a blinding light bathed ships and the ocean from horizon to horizon the sight that met our eyes as we turned was vastly more terrifying than can be appreciated from any photograph. The great grey-black mass, just flowering at the top like a tremendous cauliflower, appeared, even at that distance, to be towering right over us. Let's go into the newspaper archives and see how the Australian papers reported this. History has been made at Montebello, said the Sydney Morning Herald. And there was definitely a triumphant tone in much of the reporting. Australia's Daily Telegraph wrote that Britain handed America a dose of its own medicine at Montebello and said this British bomb may force America out of their policy of atomic secrecy. But the front page of the Daily Examiner Might have brought any British readers down to earth with a bump. Sure, their main headline was Britain Explodes First Atomic Bomb at Montebello. But on the right-hand side of the page was a story saying the USA had exploded 32. The newspaper called The Age said Atomic Quake Shook Houses. And it had a, a worrying subheading in the story Outback Kitchen Rattled. Let's hear more about this outback kitchen. It was the kitchen of Miss Joan Rayner, living on her father's sheep station, 54 miles away from Ground Zero. She said when the blast wave hit, her kitchen, quote, rattled like a mad thing. Another woman in another nearby sheep station said when the blast wave passed over, it made her ears pop. And in the town of Onslow, a worker was in an iron goods shed when the wave passed. He said, The shed continued to rumble for about one minute and my ears began to hum. And a Mrs Margaret Gazzard had her newly repaired kitchen window crack. She heard a rattle and then saw the crack form on the pane and her first instinct was to turn and give her four-year-old kids into trouble for throwing something at the window. But then she heard the rumble and realised it must have been the nuclear test. And Glennis, her four-year-old, escaped any trouble. Another reaction reported in The Age uh, reminded me of a scene in The Day After where the horse bolts. It says, um, A Mr. Nobby Clark was hitching his horse to a cart when the shockwave hit, and the poor horse broke out of its harness and bolted in panic across the field. Back in London, the Times said, yes, Britain is now an atomic world power. And then they bluntly added that this surely now alters our chances of being an early target in any future war with the Soviets. Effective civil defence has become more urgent this week, they said. And then they turned to Britain's favourite, obsessive, unending topic when it comes to atomic bombs, the Americans. What will the Americans think? Well, the Times was hopeful that the Montebello bomb would change the atomic relationship between Britain and America, which had, as you know, gone quite cold after the war. Now that we've got our own bomb and a host of new information that comes with it, the Americans might be keen to restart the atomic partnership. Now, (laughs) we've spent so long in this podcast examining um, America giving us the, the nuclear cold shoulder, so you might think, oh God, after all the success of Hurricane, are we just back to the same old chestnut of, will this make America like us again? But really, there wasn't much else for Britain to do at this moment. We didn't have a stockpile of atomic bombs. We'd built one and it was blown up in the Montebello Islands. Even if we managed to scrape together a small stockpile, how would we deliver this bomb to the enemy? Britain's famous V-bombers were being developed for that purpose, but they weren't ready yet. So with the bomb exploded, her stockpile non-existent, and her V-bombers not ready, what did we have except the flush of success... And then a whole lot of data about underwater nuclear explosions. But it was data the Americans didn't have. Data, therefore, of value. So if that was the main card that Britain held, can you blame us for going back to the whole America thing? But there was more at stake than simply winning back America's atomic cooperation and friendship. If Britain had nukes of her own, then she would be able to influence military aspects in America, crucially NATO's nuclear targeting. If NATO had gone to war at this point, then the nuclear targeting would be controlled and carried out, of course, by America, because they were the only NATO power who had them. This meant that Britain, and others in NATO, of course, would just have to cross their fingers and hope that America would target areas that would be specifically in their interest, in Britain's interests and in Western Europe's interests. Now, if Britain became a nuclear power in her own right, she would be able to have a lot more say on the targets chosen. I suppose you need to bring a nuke to the table if you want to have a say on where those nukes will go. Now, I don't know what a lot about the military and the targeting side of things. My interest of course is civil defence it's ordinary people and the nuclear threat. So in order to find out more about nuclear targeting I went straight to my bookshelves and took out two what I think are essential books. Command and Control by Eric Schlosser and The Doomsday Machine by the late Daniel Ellsberg So the stuff that I've got here on targeting is straight from those books. I can take no credit for any of it Well If Britain in the 50s was miffed that Strategic Air Command in America wouldn't share its targets with them, they needn't have taken that as a slight, because commanding control tells us that Strategic Air Command wouldn't even share their proposed nuclear targets with the US Army or the US Navy. In fact, SAC refused to share this info until 1957. Now, maybe any military buffs out there are are nodding their heads and going, yeah, well, of course, of course. But to me, that seemed shocking that they wouldn't even share it with their own countrymen. And uh, the book tells us that when all the branches of the armed forces sat down and were forced to speak and share their nuclear target lists, it turned out that they were often proposing to target the same thing. There was absolutely no coordination. And so SAC might have nuked a certain target at the same time as the Navy. So not only is this arguably a waste of resources, but it would have put Americans at risk of being caught in the subsequent blast, heat wave, or fallout of the guys who got there first. The solution to this foolish lack of coordination came in 1960 with the infamous PSYOP. That stands for the single- Integrated Operational Plan. The PSYOP would be America's nuclear war plan. Here is what we're going to hit, and here is who is going to hit it. The PSYOP took in the targets offered by... by SAC, by NATO, and it sorted them into one big coordinated list. And Eric Schlosser tells us that the PSYOP... Allocated some targets to Britain, to Bomber Command, once we, of course, had our own nukes. And on the list in 1960 were 3,729 targets, which would be hit by 3,423 nukes. And that huge target list took in the Soviet Union, China, and Eastern Europe. It was brutal all-consuming and merciless. Turning to Daniel Ellsberg's book, The Doomsday Machine, he was horrified by the PSYOP due to the, the colossal, unthinkable scale of the attack it would unleash. And that was the main feature of the PSYOP. It was utterly inflexible. It was all or it was nothing. If you retaliated, you did it in line with the PSYOP. That meant you hit those 3,729 targets all over Soviet Union, China and Eastern Europe. You did all or nothing. The massive list of targets and the, the inflexibility in the plan was the price, he said, which had to be paid for bringing in the targets of Strategic Air Command and the Army and the Navy and NATO. If you want to accommodate all of them and coordinate all of them, it will be a mammoth piece of work. An incredibly complex plan. So complex, so detailed, that you cannot make any tweaks to it. I imagine it being like a game of Jenga. Shift one little block and you might ruin the whole thing. Here is how Daniel Ellsberg described the Massive retaliation, which the PSYOP would have unleashed. Quote, the preparations contemplated one overall inflexible global attack, as if the entire destructive arsenal of the United States were launched by a single catapult. There were plenty of other problems uh, with the massive scale of the PSYOP, of course. One, it would be (laughs) horrendous. It was estimated that 275 million would be dead in the first few hours. Secondly, the plan, because of its merciless overkill, it might indeed mean that the Soviets couldn't hope to strike back at America with bombers or ICBMs, but they could still have a few tactical nukes, a few mobile launchers left, which the monstrous PSYOP wasn't able to target. And with those, they could still hit Western Europe. So, we're going to get it. The PSYOP might keep America safe, but what about the rest of NATO? And thirdly, such a massive attack would surely create so much fallout that many millions, including Americans, would die from the secondary effects of the war. Or, as we came to understand it in the 1980s, it could spark a nuclear winter. So that was a very basic and quick look at targeting in the early Cold War and sheds a bit of light, hopefully, on why Britain might have been keen for a nuke or two of her own so she could get her foot in the door over in America and have perhaps a bit of influence when it came to selecting targets. It was either that or just cross your fingers and hope America knows what it's doing. So back to Operation Hurricane. The bomb had been a success, and Prime Minister Winston Churchill made a proud statement in the House of Commons. Quote, the weapon was exploded in the morning of 3rd of October. Thousands of tonnes of water and of mud and rock from the sea bottom were thrown many thousands of feet into the air, and a high tidal wave was caused. The effects of blast and radioactive contamination extended over a wide area, and HMS Plym was vaporised, except for some red-hot fragments which were scattered over one of the islands and started fires in the dry vegetation. To give some idea of the character of the explosion, perhaps I might say this. Normal blood temperature is 98 degrees. Many of us go over 100 degrees. When the flash first burst through the hull of Plym, the temperature was nearly one million degrees. It was, of course, far higher at the point of explosion. Her Majesty's government in the United Kingdom wished to express their indebtedness for all of the help received from Australia. Not only did the Australian Commonwealth allow us to use their territory for the test, but all branches of their government, and particularly the Navy, Army and Air Force, gave us most valuable collaboration in the preparation and execution of this most important experiment. But, (laughs) alas, Britain was only allowed a few weeks in the sun, a few weeks to feel proud of herself for having achieved an atomic bomb. Because, on 1st of November, America exploded its first hydrogen bomb. And, once again, we were left behind. And then, just a few days after that, on 4th of November, America elected a new president, Eisenhower. So we had a new bomb to catch up with, and a new president to come to terms with. It never rains, but it pours. And we'll continue the story next week. A reminder that the books I've quoted from in this episode were uh, Britain, Australia and the Bomb by Lorna Arnold, Operation Hurricane by Paul Grace... And then when it came to the military side, the nuclear targeting, that was Command and Control by Eric Schlosser and The Doomsday Machine by Daniel Ellsberg. And let me thank my newest patron who joined during the week. That's Keith Brocke. Thank you, Keith. Keith now has access to all the bonus podcast episodes, which are on my Patreon page. And you can join us there at patreon.com forward slash Atomic hobo. And thank you for listening.